Welcome, everyone. We're going to get started. I'm David Schizer, the Dean of Columbia Law School. I am here to moderate the panel. And our panel's title is, of course, is Overlawing, Overtaking Democracy. Now, as the moderator, I get to ask questions, and I'm going to start with a question of the audience. My question is, aside from me, how many people here have seen Jerry Seinfeld's new animated movie, The Bee Movie? I have a six-year-old daughter, which explains why I did. Okay, a couple of people. For the rest of the audience's benefit, I should tell you the premise of the movie is that a bee, Jerry Seinfeld, a bee uh, brings a lawsuit against humans to keep them from taking the honey. And uh, quite amusingly, there are some unintended and very bad consequences of this lawsuit. Uh, but there's a line in the movie that I wanted to share with you because the bee has a co-counsel, and that co-counsel is a mosquito. And uh, the mosquito, in asserting that he is, in fact, a lawyer, says, well, I already was a blood-sucking parasite, and all I needed was this briefcase. <laughs> so this taps into that popular perception that our profession does some harm as well as some good. And the truth is, I'm sure we can all agree about the good. Lawyers are obviously uh, an essential bulwark for liberty. Uh, we also are important in uh, ensuring economic growth. We police the separation of powers, uh, enforce contracts. I mean, all that stuff is familiar. But I suspect that we would also agree that there are aspects of our legal system that are unfortunate and that we would love to change. Um, I'll give one example that I heard about that, that certainly bothered me. One of our graduates, Columbia, uh, has been defending securities class actions for years, and he got a call from a very well-known plaintiff's lawyer who said, uh, and I'm making up the name, but uh, I wanted to ask you about the Jones complaint. And my friend says, well, the Jones complaint? I, I haven't seen that one yet. And he says, well, I think we should settle it, but the fact is I haven't written it yet. So... Anyway, it's not really supposed to work that way. There are issues about strike suits, about the high cost of litigation, um, about economic activity moving offshore because of the litigation climate, and, of course, about overzealous regulation. Now, if I formulate it uh, at this level of abstraction, the fact that our system does good things but that it has problems, I suspect that everyone in the room and everyone on the panel might, might well agree with me. But once we look at specific policy questions, specific issues, then obviously there is not going to be a consensus. And I'm predicting a very lively panel because I think we have a wonderfully gifted group and a range of views. So um, moderator's job is a very easy one. What I get to do now is to introduce them to you, and they are a truly, truly terrific panel. I'm going to introduce them in alphabetical order because they're speaking in alphabetical order. So our first panelist is Professor Theodore Eisenberg. Ted is one of the leading academic experts on empirical analysis of law. And his, much of his work is focused on various aspects of our litigation system, whether it's punitive damages, victim impact evidence, capital juries, biases for and against litigants, and uh, the chances of success on appeal. Now, he's studied these issues in different contexts, uh, contexts as variable as civil rights, bankruptcy, and capital cases. Um, Ted is joined by his fellow panelist, Walter Olson. Walter is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's written three books on the U.S. litigation system. They're called The Litigation Explosion, The Excuse Factory, and The Rule of Lawyers. He also runs a website that many of you may have seen called overlawyer.com, and uh, it's actually one of the oldest blogs on law that's around. Um, 
Victor Schwartz is our next panelist. Victor is a partner in the D.C. office of Shook, Hardy and Bacon. He chairs its public policy group, which integrates litigation, government affairs and, and public relations. He's a leading expert on product liability. And in fact, he helped to draft the Uniform Product Liability Act and the Risk Retention Act. He's the chairman, uh, he was the chairman of the Federal Interagency Task Force on Product Liability at the Department of Commerce. And he's also the co-author of uh, something academics like me know quite well, one of the widely, most widely used, I think the most widely used torts casebook, Prosser, Wade, and Schwartz. Victor, by the way, is also former dean of the University of Cincinnati College of Law, and I can't resist telling you that he is also a Columbia Law School graduate. Um, which brings me then to our final panelist, who is also a Columbia Law School graduate, uh, David Vladek, who is a professor at Georgetown Law Center. And David uh, is a former director of the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which is a well-known public interest law firm. At Georgetown, he directs the Institute for Public Representation, which is a clinical law program, and he's also the director of their Center on Health Regulation and Governance. So it is my pleasure uh, to welcome our panelists. Please, joining me, please join me in welcoming them. And Ted, let's start with you. Uh, so as uh, first, I'm not a graduate of Columbia Law School, and uh, but I have spoken there. So maybe that's uh, uh, and uh, and I'm available for honorary degrees. Uh, uh, should should you want to unify the panel in some way? Um, my, my talk is really about uh, data, sort of what I've come to see about the tort system generally and the uh, perceptions of over-lawyering and what the data <laughs> seem to show about it, uh, not in any particular case, but in the aggregate, sort of at the level of whether we need national or even um, very dramatic state reform. Um, I want to mention three results having nothing to do with me <laughs> necessarily, but they come from three pretty respectable and diverse sources. One is the Rand Institute for Civil Justice. Uh, they published an article in 2004 uh, in uh, a journal I edit, the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies. They looked at 40-year time series of data, which was probably the longest time series of tort data we have in the United States, uh, limited geographically. But what they found was no real increase in awards over 40 years. Um, we put that next to the Bureau of Justice Statistics data for 45 of America's largest counties. Uh, they've been studying since 1992 uh, trials, jury trials in particular, and have found really no increase in the rate at which, in, in the amount of awards uh, since 1992 with follow-up in 96 and 2001, and they're continuing to work on it in 2007. Uh, I'm sorry, for 2005. Those data should be available in 2008. Again, no, uh, the median award in a tort case is about $30,000, and that hasn't changed much over time. Um, we follow that up with the National Center for State Courts, which is the leading clearinghouse of information about state courts. And what they've done, which is very difficult, is to try and get some uniformity in the rate, way in which states report cases. Just simple case counting, <laughs> even like the number of tort cases filed. And what the National Center data pretty consistently show over the last 10 or 20 years is absolutely no real increase in tort filings. Um, so we have no increase in filings. We have no increase in awards. Uh, and yet we have, I think, um, uh, consistent claims about from the business community uh, that um, 
the tort system's out of control, and that juries in particular are a threat to their businesses because of the high variance in jury awards and the like. And over the years, I've sort of wondered, you know, our businesses are pretty smart. Um, do they really not know what's going on? Um, and, you know, it's perfectly respectable to lobby for tort reform on the grounds of it'll cost us less money, and why not? I want lower taxes, too. Um, but in general, do they really not know what's going on, or do they, um, you, know, uh, you know, just want to get some advantage like the rest of us? Um, and so I think I've begun to get some information that might help reconcile it, and that's the burden of what I'm putting up on the screen uh, today. And that's an article by Jeff Miller at NYU Law School and me on um, how businesses actually behave when they contract with each other. Right. So we looked at the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission Edgar database, uh, searched, uh, actually read the dispute resolution, dispute resolution clauses in 2,800 contracts. Uh, and we coded, I think, two key things. One is, did they contract out of the legal system by opting for arbitration? And two is, if they didn't contract out of the legal system by opting for arbitration, did they at least mutually agree to avoid those high-risk, crazy juries? And so if a lot of the rhetoric was true, I believe one would predict that we would consistently see businesses tend to opt out of the legal system altogether because they don't really trust the judges either, or two, opt out of at least the jury trials because those are the particularly risky ones. Um, so uh, what you see up there is simply the larger project that we're reading systematically, the dispute resolution clauses. The DePaul Law Review article already published gives the report, gives the results for arbitration clauses. And what we found there, to our surprise, was for these big, publicly held, sophisticated American corporations, they ex-ante contracted for arbitration exactly 11% of the time. Uh, that is, 90% of their contracts did not ex-ante agree to arbitration. Um, that's in sharp distinction to perhaps if you look at your cell phone contract or your credit card contract, where you'll probably find 100% requiring you to arbitrate and avoid class actions. Um, um, today's story is about perceptions of juries and what we find. And so you can read down the list of perceptions. Juries aren't, aren't, comp, aren't, aren't competent. They're unpredictable. They're prone to give absurdly high awards, even in business against business. You might remember Texaco Pennzoil's $11 billion award. Um, so you risk the company when you go before a jury. They consider extra legal factors. And um, they're just expensive to begin with. So we should really be avoiding these. Um, so we predicted that large, sophisticated businesses, when we could actually get at their contracts, not the ex-post litigation, when we could actually get at their contracts, would tend to show waivers of jury trial and waivers of arbitration. A, a different article addresses the arbitration one. Um, we coded 12 categories of contracts. The data come from the Securities and Exchange Commission, 8K filings. Um, there are a lot of contracts up there. <laughs> so this is a six- or seven-month time slice uh, in 2002, and it would be nice to do more, but with 2,800, I think we're getting a reasonable picture of what's going on, although, of course, things could vary over time, uh, and you can't generalize from particular time slices. Uh, here's the basic results. I hope they can be seen in the back. Um, perhaps the most important line is the bottom line, that, that is the total row at the bottom, uh, which suggests that of our... Uh, 2,800 contracts, 19.9%, that would be the second numerical column, waive jury trial. Um, if you count arbitration clauses as effective waivers of jury trial, uh, then that's the second pair of, the last pair of columns, then we'd have a total of 29% of contracts avoiding juries. I'm not sure it's correct to count arbitration clauses as being 
particularly fearful of juries since they're also fleeing judges as well as juries. Um, but at least we have, uh, I, I'd say the cleanest number is the 20%, but you can make of it what you will when we throw in the arbitration clauses. Um, so we try to explore the waiver pattern, and I'm, this is not, I mean, I refer you to the full article in the journal um, to get all the details, but we try to say, well, what explains the pattern of waivers across um, across cases, across the contracts. And I think it's important. We're studying ex-ante behavior of big, sophisticated parties, not the ex-post litigation behavior when disputes have gone badly. Um, so we thought maybe contract standardization um, might help explain it. That is, is, is the contract just a form you mark up? Uh, you know, you're the associate in the law firm. You're told draft the new contract. What do you ask for? Show me the last deal. I'll change the names. And by not changing more, I'll probably make a mistake, but at least I'll be doing what the last guy did. Um, cho- we looked at choice of forum clauses. We looked at international contract status. Was, was a party to the contract a non-U.S. entity? Uh, and we looked at uh, several other things. Um, this is a measure of contract um, standardization. And it's simply the, the, our crude measure of standardization is the choice of law. Right? And what you can see is that in some categories of contracts, for example, mergers, the second in from the upper left, in some categories of contracts, uh, New York law is completely dominant. And that's also the subject of another article we're doing. Um, in pooling service agreements, these sort of fairly sophisticated financial things, New York law dominates. In underwriting agreements, New York law dominates. Um, in security agreements, New York law dominates. Uh, and generally, the, the story of choice of law for large public firms is New York. Um, it's interesting. They tend to incorporate in Delaware, but the law they tend to choose in about 50 percent of the contract is New York law. Um, and we're trying to see whether that measure of standardization actually forecast particular clauses, such as rates of arbitration, uh, em- embracement, and rates of jury trial waiver. Um, uh, on the left side, we saw uh, in this graph, the left-hand side, the red bars are um, standardization does help explain the pattern of arbitration clauses. That is, in low standardization contracts, you see a relatively high rate of um, arbitration clauses. And in high standardization contracts, you see a very low rate of arbitration clauses. Now, that might have something to do with the theory of when arbitrators are most appropriate or not, and, but that's sort of beyond the scope of today's. Uh, talk. The pattern is less clear on the right side, which deals with um, jury trial waivers. That is, we don't find jury trial waivers really doing a good job of helping to explain the pattern of, um, sorry, we don't find contract standardization, as measured by choice of law, really doing a good job of helping to ascertain um, when jury trials will be waived. Um, What we do find is Uh, And there's really one line in here that's, I think, critical, uh, although it's buried. We do find a very high correlation between whether a contract specified a forum, and you might expect that all the time, but you don't actually see it all the time in these contracts. Um, We found a very high association between whether a contract specified a forum, choice of forum for litigation, and whether there was a jury trial waiver. And it's the fourth row up from the bottom, uh, labeled in the left-hand column, no forum specified, that actually accounted for more than half the contracts. Uh, in 1,600 of the contracts, well, in 1,700 of the contracts, no forum was specified. And in the overwhelming majority of those, um, there was no jury trial waiver. So the contracts that went to the detail of specifying a forum also went to the detail. Uh, also, I'm sorry, the contracts that did not go to the, to the detail, 
detailed level of specifying a forum, also did not address jury trial waivers. And that may be some insight into what's going on uh, with the lawyers uh, drafting the contracts or their clients. Uh, one would think with these large, sophisticated firms, publicly held ones, that the clients actually have input. It's not just the sort of lawyer driving the system, but one can't be sure. Um, we tried to see whether things varied by the presence of a non-U.S. party. That is, non-U.S. parties might be particularly fearful of American juries and might bargain even harder to waive jury trials. Uh, but we didn't find any significant effect or any effect whatsoever when we had domestic parties, pure, pure domestic parties, and then international parties as also part of the contract. We found jury trial waiver in about 20 percent. I should add, with arbitration clauses, we did find a difference. We found arbitration clauses present in about 20 percent of the contracts when there was a non-U.S. party compared to about 10 percent when there was a U.S. party. Um, this is simply an effort. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the Chamber of Commerce annual ranking of legal systems. And we're trying to get a handle on whether that perception helped drive uh, the rate of jury trial waivers. It, there's a modest association, not terribly strong, and one has to be suspicious about these sort of state-level aggregated data sets. Uh, but at least it was some, at least the chamber supplied something about bus the business community's perceptions that we could that we could test with their behavior with respect to jury trials. So the, the x-axis is the Chamber of Commerce rank of the fairness of the jury system in a state, and the y-axis is the waiver clause rate, jury trial waiver clause rate. And you see this sort of a mild slope, lower left, up right, but it's hardly a very tight fit. Uh, things are pretty much all over the place. Um, tried to look at jury trial waiver, wa waiver rates and the queue for trial, that is how long you have to wait uh, for a trial uh, within a place, and we didn't find that very helpful. This line is... If anything, the opposite, and Illinois is a big outlier here, so, and that's Cook County in this case. Um, so bottom coin, there's two levels of bottom line for me. One is uh, our corporate lawyers focusing on jury trial waivers, or are they just overlooking this seemingly key thing if avoiding juries was such an important thing, uh, as we're often told in uh, reform proposals. Um, and then I guess the other, the other bottom line I'm sort of beginning to take away is the RAND data, the Bureau of Justice Statistics data and the National Center for State Courts data, all of which suggest for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, no tort system in crisis, are actually quite consistent with the way businesses are actually behaving. That is, they are not opting out of the legal system by fleeing to arbitration. They are not opting out of jury trials by ex ante contractually waiving them. And so I think our businesses do know what's going on. Um, and it suggests to me that tort reform, um, you know, is fine. It's like tax lobbying. We can get lower costs if we can pay less in judgments, but it's not really born of a deep-seated fear of either our litigation system or of our juries. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Our format is that we will ask each of our speakers to speak for about 10 minutes, and then after that, we'll open it up for questions. Uh, our next speaker is Walter Olson. Thank you, Dean Schizer. Uh, <clears throat> my topic this morning is, uh, is Europe Americanizing its legal system? And almost every day you see another news story suggesting that, yes, this is happening. Uh, in England, if you turn on late night TV, uh, you are apt to see ads uh, with catchy jingles promoting litigation, uh, saying where there's a blame, there's a claim. Uh, and <clears throat> 
England and even Germany have legalized what we might call champerty, uh, uh, third parties advancing money to litigants to finance their lawsuits. France and indeed uh, many countries in Europe are considering introducing class actions or have already done so uh, just this April. Uh, Shell Oil announced a $400 million uh, investor settlement, which was ballyhooed as, uh, quote, the first pan-European settlement of a securities fraud case. It was uh, <coughs> done by, with European investors, but organized by an American uh, plaintiff's lead firm. Uh, Germany may be legalizing lawyers' contingency fees. Uh, a survey by The Economist, the magazine, found that nearly half of executive and lawyer respondents thought that contingency fees were on their way in in Europe where they'd mostly been illegal. Uh, in Canada, which I know is not actually part of Europe geographically, uh, <clears throat> but which ca- counts as part of Europe for most of these issues of legal classification, uh, they have already liberalized class actions, and they are getting a lot more of them uh, in some familiar areas like employment law, uh, where the Financial Post reports uh, Canada is experiencing a boom in wage hour discrimination and harassment suits, does that sound familiar, uh, against employers. Uh, in Ontario, there are proposals to liberalize the awarding of punitive damages against employers, punitive damages having been uh, pretty rare and pretty low in Canada up to now. Well, so we've all seen the stories like this, and it is very easy to jump to the conclusion that we have here a big established trend which is going to go on. Um, And it fits, in fact, the frame of mind that many of us are approaching this with. Uh, I think for many conservatives in the room here, there is probably a predisposition to believe bad news from Europe. Um, you know, wouldn't you know that they would pick up on one of our bad social trends, you know, first hip-hop and now this. Uh, how, how, how typical of modern Europeans to take one of the social advantages they did have and, and toss it out the window. And the, <clears throat> at the same time, those who would disagree with many of the underlying premises are also predisposed, uh, that, that is, admirers of our legal system here who believe that, by and large, it's, it's just a ducky, uh, are... It, you know, people in the, in the leadership of the American Bar Association are also apt to treat this as an unstoppable and definite trend. Uh, if you are a leader in the ABA, for example, you, you have probably been totally mystified at what these strange foreign countries were doing for the last uh, few centuries anyway in their, their legal systems. How, how are you even supposed to run a legal system without contingency fees or class actions? Uh, why is there all this stress on making outcomes of cases uniform and predictable? What, what's with that? Uh, what, why are damages so low in, in these countries as almost everyone uh, agrees that they are. Uh, what's with this loser pays thing? It, it's almost as if they don't want you to file a suit that's going to lose. Uh, <clears throat> what, what, why are the judges, why is the core of judges so professionalized, so removed from politics, so removed from ideology, um, so timid in, in the way that they defer to legislatures as to what the law should be? Uh, why are they expected to be smart but not creative uh, in <coughs> these other legal systems? And <coughs> why are Lawyer is given so much less scope to do things like discovery. Well, as I say, in the view of many uh, opinion leaders in the American legal system, this is a series of baffling questions uh, to which the answer can only be that these are backward systems, historical accidents, and uh, they've never really had a chance to think about the superiority of the American system. And once they do think about it, they will, of course, adopt our way of doing things. Well, I'm not going to deny that there is some genuine trend here. 
but I would like to express a bit of a contrarian view uh, and, and strike three themes in particular. First, the politics of these issues are very much different abroad than they are here, and the political influence of uh, lawyers as an organized body of self-interest is much less in these other countries. Uh, it is keenly felt in every one of these countries, so far as I can see, that they do not want to wind up with America's problems. Um, <clears throat> and they have no intention of giving up crucial features of their system. <clears throat> I'd point out that the pressure to Americanize, uh, we read the stories typically from English-speaking countries, and that is where the pressure to Americanize is, in fact, strongest. I, I call it the curse of the common language. Uh, our lawyers are flying over there in delegations, both the trial lawyers and, and bar associations generally, uh, evangelizing sometimes for the American uh, way of, of litigation. Uh, it starts in law school. A Canadian lawyer told me that uh, they're studying law at uh, Canadian uh, school. You <coughs> go to the library, and there are, of course, a few uh, Canadian law journals here and there, but there are row after row and stack after stack of American uh, law reviews, and uh, inevitably you read them, and inevitably they come to seem less than crazy. Uh, and <coughs> This is not, by and large, happening so much in, in Asia or in continental Europe, but it is happening in many of the English-speaking countries. And secondly, we, we tend to exaggerate the extent to which uh, Great Britain is our polar opposite. We think, oh, well, you know, they're to totally anti-litigation and they have uh, an entirely different approach. From the standpoint of most of the rest of the world, uh, this is not so. England is viewed as more of a hybrid between the American way of doing things and uh, the rest of the world way. And this was true even before the recent trends. Uh, there was a... The European Patent Office uh, earlier this year gathered information on the relative costs of litigation across Europe. It disclosed that to litigate a small to medium-sized patent case in England costs between three and ten times as much as the same case in Germany or the Netherlands. Uh, Sir Hugh Laddie attributes the gap to the English system's attachment to, quote, lengthy cross-examination and oral argument and, above all else, disclosure of documents, unquote. So... <clears throat> You had a system that uh, was already closer to the American than, than many of its rivals and, and has become uh, yet, yet closer recently. In England, and indeed in all of the countries uh, where uh, changes have been uh, in the offing, there has been a huge national debate. And uh, the, on, in Britain, you have uh, a great deal of uh, public opinion uh, and bench opinion uh, which is dead set against uh, Americanization. You have a series of uh, decisions by the British judiciary uh, upholding very eloquently uh, principles like uh, assumption of risk, uh, declining the invitation to adopt liberal American damage theories on things like the right to sue over asymptomatic uh, fear, fear of future illness. Uh, and <clears throat> you have... Well, earlier this month in the London Times, there was an article by their columnist, Michael Herman, about proposals to introduce class action procedure. And he, I'll, I'll uh, <coughs> just quote a, a, a few phrases there. He said that the perceived evils of the U.S. model were on everyone's mind and that uh, there was a pretty universal consensus that uh, in order to avoid those evils, Europe was going to keep 
Uh, its costs follow the event principles. It was going to avoid things like damage multiples, triple damages, and punitive damages. In France, the Sarkozy government has been introduced, okay, has been introducing legislation to provide for class actions. And there was an interesting quote from a leader of a, uh, or a spokesman for a leading French consumer group, uh, which was strongly in favor of introducing class actions. But uh, Mr. Cedric Musso uh, hastened to add, uh, quote, uh, We don't want an American law with its excesses, no contingency fees for lawyers or elected judges and jury trials. There would be a series of breaks on abuses with professional judges. Again, that's one of the advocates of the legislation. Uh, And I think we'll be waiting for a long time for for American consumer groups to uh, use language like that. Once you turn beyond uh, the UK and a few of the continental countries, uh, you begin to see not just a debate about whether to move in the American direction, but all sorts of other trends. And many of you in the room here I know are familiar with the long-standing system uh, in effect in New Zealand where they have effectively national accident insurance and they take uh, huge numbers of personal injury disputes completely out of the legal system uh, in favor of social insurance. Well, that system, many of you practicing lawyers will be glad to know, has not spread to other countries. It remains uh, pretty much sui generis for for New Zealand. Uh, What is showing some signs of spreading, though, is the somewhat more moderate idea known as scheduled damages. Uh, This is very familiar to those who um, have practiced in continental European systems, and it basically takes the idea behind our workers' comp, that is, that uh, they should come up with a range of payments for particular injuries, broken arms, legacies, and so forth, and apply them not just to workplace injuries, but to auto accidents, uh, accidents in general. Uh, (coughs) A couple of years ago, Ireland, which had been, as you can imagine, very close to the English system in the way it approached a lot of these issues, uh, decided in a very radical change, the sort of radical change that one seldom sees in uh, these tort systems, uh, decided to adopt scheduled damages. And I will uh, read just a couple of sentences about what it did. Henceforth, the compensation value of a broken arm or leg, aside from lost wages and other economic damages, will be determined with reference to a schedule or table known as the quantum, uh, which will serve as an indicated settlement figure. Uh, The quantum damages will retain some flexibility to account for the details of particular injuries and injured persons, but they're intended to be set at the same average level as the Irish courts are currently handing out for each variety of serious injury. The difference is that there will be no occasion, or at least less of an occasion, for dueling attorneys to argue damages afresh in each case in hopes of getting something higher or lower than the norm. This is tragic, of course, if you are in the business of litigating cases. It takes away... Uh, in a great many cases, the the opportunity to have much of an argument over damages, and it just leaves you with liability. Um, So, Canada. Canada is the closest system, and it has been liberalizing, yes, and yet the things that it um, are doing don't don't always make it into uh, American papers. Relatively few Americans seem to be aware that in Canada they had their tort reform 30 years ago. Uh, I'm quoting my colleague Michael Cross from George Mason uh, University School of Law, who is from Quebec uh, originally. Um, 
He says, uh, appeals courts revise damage awards from lower courts for uniformity, not uh, the same standard that American appeals courts do. In the 1970s, Canada's Supreme Court peremptorily announced that it would no longer tolerate huge differences in non-economic damages, i.e. pain and suffering. So it was going to put a lid on them of 100,000. It's adjusted that for inflation, but it's still in effect. And finally, Australia. Australia, in many ways, was the most American-like in its litigation. Uh, It had very high rates of it. Uh, There was an enormous national debate, and I believe every state in Australia enacted uh, very strong liability rules, so strong that um, (coughs) in... Uh, There was an enormous outcry from the legal profession because lawyers were being laid off left and right. Uh, A whole floor of a Sydney uh, office building was emptied out. You could see right through it from one window to the other because of all the layoffs of lawyers. And (coughs) New South Wales Bar Association President Ian Harrison warned that up to a third of barristers could lose their jobs. Well, what do you think the premier of New South Wales, uh, Bob Carr, said? He said, tough. Uh, (coughs) Premier gave the lawyers short shrift, saying he'd rather see money going to workers than lying legal eagles' pockets. Quote, Australia would have been put out of work if we hadn't reformed the tort laws and reined in the culture of litigation in New South Wales, he said. I will close by noting that that popular Premier, uh, Bob Carr, is an ornament of the Labour Party. Things are very different over there. Thanks. Walter, thank you. Our next speaker is Victor Schwartz. The dean asked if we wanted to sit or stand. If you're 5'5", it doesn't really make much difference. Uh, (laughs) I want to thank the Federalist Society and uh, David Ray. They have really made this very good. You'll see and you'll hear the professor who follows me. Some of his views will be different from my own. Federalist Society is always balanced with their speakers. And you'll see in this morning's paper, there is a new group. Actually, it started about five years ago called the American Constitutional Society. And in this very place, they had me at the first meeting, and it was five to one. And the moderator was from Hamas, and they thought I was from the UJA. So it was, um, I didn't mind that. But outside, they had this... um, truck was very soft tomatoes and a plaintiff's lawyer selling them. It said Schwartz speaks at 10. I mean, that just um, was a little. uh, The dean and I had something in common. We were both. uh, He was the youngest dean, I believe, in the history of Columbia. And I was 32 when I was dean of Cincinnati. And all the faculty were older than I am. And I learned a life's lesson forever to this day. I can deal with cranky people. I mean, it's just um, a great opportunity to be. A young dean. Uh, I'd just say off the top, uh, right in the beginning, uh, Professor Eisenberg's work are, the, are really great works. The data always tends to show um, that a lot of what the tort reformers say is not true. Uh, some of us call it data rape. Uh, it's just um, not, um, but, it's, but it, it tends to be that way. Uh, but we don't really, uh, at the American Tort Reform Association, if you look at our website, uh, ATRA.org or the Institute for Legal Reform, uh, we've never at ATRA in years criticized juries. That may come as a surprise to you. Uh, judges, yes. We do have our judicial hellholes report, uh, the 12th, and we find the judges that really are unfair. We look at the legal system, not at the juries. Uh, I did plaintiff's work for 14 years. I like juries. 
I think there is a little bit uh, of a problem when they're not given good rules or atmospheres in which to conduct objective judgments. This morning, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the new personal injury lawyer paths to expand liability. And if I have an outline, if any of you are interested in any of these trends, contact it, contact me, contact ATRA. But these are the trends that at least I see. We try to we study very much what the plaintiff's lawyers are doing. Uh, I have great respect for them. I did it. They have a terrific leader now. And John Haber is the best leader, I think. Uh, well, now they call it AAJ has ever had. One of the areas is to expand the growing link between personal injury lawyers and public officials, sometimes state attorney generals, sometimes for persons in uh, lower hierarchy in the states, and have contingency lawyers bring cases on behalf of the public. Uh, some say it's a good idea that they save money. There's a contingency fee. It doesn't come out of state coffers. Others are more concerned because some of the delegations to these personal injury lawyers are almost complete. The Rhode Island paint litigation, for example, is literally run by a plaintiff's firm. And plaintiff's lawyers, I was one, their allegiance is not necessarily to the public at large, but to expand tort law as much as possible, get as high a verdict as possible. And that's their position. And it does the delegation become just abdication of responsibilities. We think it is. Uh, they think it's not. But it's certainly a trend and it's going to expand, whether it's guns or drugs or other things. You're going to see more and more in the next five years state attorney generals handing over power to enforce their, their tort part um, to personal injury lawyers. They are Seeking, and I, it's been this way for a long time, nothing wrong with it, to expand liability in the courts by changing fundamental doctrines. How many people are lawyers here? A lot of them. Well, you know, from law school, uh, there was something called public nuisance. Actually, it's in the back of my casebook. Most people never get to it. But it's, um, it, it's an arcane tort, and it was used to stop activity that was harmful to the public at large. If somebody put a big log across Connecticut Avenue or they dumped junk in water, well, and it was a good tort, and it is one, to stop that and get injunctions against it. But now the fundamentals of public nuisance, at least our friends in the plaintiff's bar, are trying to change it. So it becomes a money damage vehicle to get money, not stop activity, to expand private rights to sue, to call things nuisance that really weren't, to empower state attorney generals, to bring actions to recover under Medicaid for a whole variety of things that never were before. It's a trend. It's going to expand. We've written articles about it, but it's a vehicle for change. Is it good? We'll see in our society. For over 20 years, there have been things called Consumer Protection Acts, I never really from, was familiar with them until about five years ago. They, I thought they were public uh, issues, and they, they generally are. But now they're used as private ways to sue. And they're written so loosely that in this town, all of you know who live here, a judge was able to prolong a case for two years, uh, seeking millions of dollars because he left his pants at a dry cleaner and they forgot to bring them back. That's because these laws require no reliance. These recall laws in many states don't require that somebody is injured. And while they say consumer, I think they are a trend that is um, inexcusable in its content. In the United States Congress, people uh, representing the public uh, plaintiff's bar are looking for ways to expand their right to sue. Again, no problem with it, but I would alert you to it. 
in the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Act reauthorization in the Senate. Read it, and you'll see in one of the pages, guess who is going to enforce the CPSC? 51 different state attorney generals with no supervision whatsoever. So if they decide something is defective, let's go do it. Uh, the CPSC can intervene, but they have a very small staff, and I don't think they can monitor 51 state attorney generals. I think it's brilliant in terms of what the plaintiff's lawyers are doing. They also, in federal legislation and state too, are trying to seed what are called implied causes of action. And the lawyers in this uh, room would know what they are. It's a regulatory rule that on its face just regulates. But they formulate it in a way so a court may later say there's a new right to sue. Restaurants have to show what trans fat is. They don't. There's a penalty. But if you create a private cause of action, somebody whose triglycerides were elevated because of uh, these uh, trans fats could have a right to sue. I think there should be transparency. I think if some legislature is going to create a new right to sue, they should say it. But that's not really current law, and trends in that direction are rife. Um, they are seeking also to end all preemption. Um, that is all right, but I think when something is heavily, heavily regulated in a proper manner, bringing a uh, tort suit contrary to that is not sound public policy. Since I started teaching torts a long time ago, and when we did our first edition of the casebook that I was on in 1976, the mantra of plaintiff's lawyers, and I said it was true and still believe it to an extent, is that the development of law should be by judges. That's tort law. And that was always the mantra of the plaintiff's bar. But in the past elections, a number of state legislatures has fallen under dominance of the trial lawyers, which is okay. But they are now using the legislature at the state level to expand rights to sue, to create brand new rights to sue. And because law is so arcane, these things are not always understood. Wrongful death actions, not for mothers or fathers or children, but for cousins. Uh, expanding Consumer Protection Acts that have requirements that say you have to rely on what you've seen. Uh, a lot of other trends. And also to undermine or change current tort reform. And a lot of tort reform does work. In Mississippi, in Texas, medical liability reform was put in place, and insurance rates have fallen a lot. Uh, doctor and medical services are more available. I respect the work of Professor Eisenberg, but if you spoke to persons in rural Mississippi who couldn't have access to medicine because of high um, medical liability costs, they're not, they don't read the empirical journal. They just know that they don't have access to medicine. Tort reforms have come in. They've done some good. The efforts are now there to repeal them. Uh, I just would say in conclusion that these trends are all worth looking at. They're of a concern to me. They may be of concern to you. Uh, the plaintiff's bar can make very sound reasons why they think they're in the interest of democracy. I really don't think they are, and I thank you for your time. Thank you, Victor. Our final speaker is Professor David Vladek. Morning. 
I want to thank the Federalist Society for inviting me and for bringing me together again with my good friend Vic Schwartz. Every time Vic says he's concerned, I feel really good. So um, it's just wonderful to listen to his litany of concerns about this. I was invited, I think, to be the contrarian here, and so I would like to start by explaining why I think this panel has been misnamed. The real question is underlawyering, undermining democracy. And if you look at the trends in our legal profession, the truth is that most Americans have no access to legal services, cannot afford them, and this trend of underservice is accelerating, not slowing down. According to the American Bar Association and everyone else who's looked at the question, 90% or more of the legal service needs of people who are not poor but are not rich are not being met in the United States. It's just a fact. When I went to law school, most lawyers who graduated ended up serving the people. We ended up representing people. That's no longer the case. If you look at the demographic shifts in the profession, the majority of lawyers now go to institutions that represent corporations, not individuals. And this, this underservice is accelerating with cutbacks in legal services and reductions of public funding for legal aid. Uh, and, and, and I think it's reached a point where there has been a fundamental breakdown in our ability to provide legal services for many, many Americans. I was talking to a judge on the Second Circuit who, facing this crunch of immigration cases, both the Second and Ninth Circuit are just flooded, flooded with immigration cases. In the Second Circuit, it's 40 percent of the docket. Uh, he explained to me that these cases, by the time they get to the Court of Appeals, were essentially hopeless. Why? Because fewer than a third of the people caught up in the deportation nightmare have access to legal services at all. So he sees many cases in which the result ought to have been different. But for the want of legal services, someone is facing deportation, being taken from their family is being split apart simply because there were no lawyers on hand to help that individual. So the idea that we are suffering from over-lawyering uh, depends on where you sit. If you sit in a corporate boardroom, no shortage of lawyers. If you sit anywhere else, uh, unless you have a contingency fee case, uh, you're going to have a difficult time getting, getting a lawyer. Uh, making this trend worse, and here Victor and I are going to cross swords a bit, is what I consider to be the acceleration of door-closing devices. Victor talked about preemption. Well, let's talk about preemption. In the last six years, this administration, by regulatory fiat, by regulatory fiat, has announced broad preemption in virtually every consumer product that's regulated by the federal government. Not Congress. Vic wants transparency. There's none of that. These were not preemption decisions made as part of formal rulemakings. The agency simply announces in a preamble to a final rule, often having nothing to do with preemption, that... Going forward, for example, failure to warn claims with respect to pharmaceuticals. There is no preemption provision in the Food and Drug Act relating to pharmaceuticals. All failure to warn claims are preempted. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is in the midst of, of, of rulemaking on seven different uh, issues. Each rulemaking notice that uh, NHTSA puts out says, going forward, our rule will preempt state tort law. This is the largest wholesale revision to consumer product tort law that, uh, that I think has taken place since the development of strict liability. 
yet it's taking place in a non-transparent way. And if it succeeds, we'll know that down the road when the courts start to review it, you will see a wholesale revision of our tort law, not done by Congress, not done by courts, but achieved through regulatory fiat. Um, there are other factors as well that I think are making it more difficult for ordinary Americans to get legal services. The data show, the data show, and, and Professor Eisenberg is right, the, tort, the, the, the rate of tort cases, both in the state and federal courts, has been stable over the last 15 or 20 years. Now, there needs to be an asterisk next to that, to that, to that statement, because during that time, you've seen the courts flooded with asbestos cases. And if you control for asbestos, you take asbestos out of the mix, there's really been a decline in those kinds of cases, even though the population of the United States has grown by about 20 percent in that time. So is there, is there a, a, an increase in tort litigation? I think the answer plainly is no. And if you control for asbestos litigation, um, then the answer is, is, is certainly no. Um, let me just... Turn, thank you. Uh, let me just turn now uh, to some of Professor Olson's comments, because I think instead of the Americanization of European law, what we ought to consider is the Anglization of the American legal system. Uh, you know, our, our legal system was founded on English, on, on the English system, but uh, the English has the, their legal system has addressed these issues in ways that we ought to at least take a look at. For example, 90 to 95 percent of people who go to legal services organizations with a viable claim and qualify for legal services because they meet the very low thresholds of income, uh, income uh, eligibility are turned away. Why? Not because they don't have a viable legal claim, not because they're not eligible, but simply because legal services does not have the capacity to address their needs. In England, Someone in that situation would go to a private lawyer, and the private lawyer would be paid for by the state. There is virtually universal access to legal services by the poor. Now, some people complain that that place is too great a burden on the government. Maybe it does, but at least in terms of access to justice, the English are far ahead of us. In terms of contingency fee cases, the English haven't simply approved English uh, contingency fee cases, but there is, it is now permitted for English lawyers to use runners. I mean, if you went and solicited a client, you walked up to someone and says, I'm your lawyer, uh, that would be a violation of the disciplinary rules. And nobody here who practices law would at least would do that or at least do that in any public way. Uh, in England, there are people with clipboards uh, on the sidewalks signing up people for litigation. That is that is the ninth circle of hell for Victor Schwartz. Um, uh, but but it gives people access to the legal system. Uh, there is now uh, England still has the loser pay system, not the American rule, but the English rule. But there are now insurance systems that permit people who think they have viable claims to go to insurers and essentially buy insurance. This is uh, would be, of course, unethical and, and, and impossible in the United States, 
but they're risk-spreading devices that now enable people who would otherwise be frozen out of the legal system to participate. Now, I'm not suggesting we adopt any of these uh, proposals wholesale. Uh, I, too, uh, don't want to see people standing on the street corner with clipboards signing people up for lawsuits. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we have reached a point uh, where we need some kind of a breakthrough on the provision of civil legal aid uh, to Americans. It, it is simply uh, hard to imagine that we have a million lawyers in the United States, but most Americans, unless they're uh, fairly well off, cannot afford basic ser legal services. That, uh, that seems to me intolerable. I've been told I've got to wrap up. Uh, let, me just, uh, let me just say one last word. Um, I think that there are all sorts of frictions in the joints in the way the American legal system works. Uh, I think we need to have a conversation about how to improve access of justice, how to improve the quality of justice, how to make these decisions in a more transparent way. Uh, I don't disagree that if Congress decides that a heavily regulated product ought to be insulated from tort law, that's Congress's decision to make. Uh, but I don't have any problem with making that decision in an open and transparent way, uh, nor do I have any problem with, with, uh, with this, the common law system working the way it always has, which is letting judges and litigants fight it out. Uh, I am very troubled by this new, this new trend of preemption by regulatory fiat. Uh, it, these are statutes that, by and large, do not contain preemption provisions or, in, in, in the case of the National Highway Traffic Safety Act, don't contain a, a preemption provision, contain savings clauses, express saving clauses. And the idea that a regulatory agency can, in the face of contrary congressional uh, direction, uh, simply declare that its regulatory acts are going to have preemptive uh, effect, uh, I find deeply troubling. Anyway, thank you so much. I promised you a lively panel. I think we, we delivered on that promise, and we would love to invite your questions. If you're near a microphone and can ask it that way, that would be even better. So, yes. Uh, Ted Frank, uh, I, I'd like to possibly point out some agreement between Victor and David, and that is over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen uh, the number of lawyers increase, the number of corporate lawyers increase, the number of corporate litigators increase, their billing rates increase. And that can't be because the number of tort cases or the volume of tort litigation is going down. It's because it's becoming more important to have $500 an hour lawyers or more expense, excuse me, more expensive lawyers looking at these cases because of the billion dollar consequences of litigation. And perhaps if there were some more constraints on that, the amount of uh, American resources devoted to litigation would be going down and the, there would be more access to justice because lawyers wouldn't be priced out of the market by the need for corporations to bid for these lawyer services. Uh, the only point I would make is, and, I, and I'd be interested in Professor Eisenberg's view, my sense is that to the extent there have been dramatic increases in litigation, it's corporate versus corporate litigation, not tort litigation. And so many of these $500 an hour lawyers are involved in very complex litigation, but pitting one 
big company against the other. I would uh, say, and this is not directly to your question, Ted, but some of the speakers were saying that the number of litigation uh, has remained the same. And in my practice, I just think that that's a figure that is not really the one to watch. In my experience in the past 20 years, the number of settlements has grown astronomically. I mean, there was, last week there was 65,000 cases pending against Merck. Today, there may not be any because they were settled in a $4.85 billion settlement. So just to look at what actually goes to trial is not really looking at the system as I know it. The numbers are there um, in, in litigation, but in settlements, you can't find those numbers. And more and more, I see... Uh, defendants are more interested in settling because of the cost of litigation and risks of exposure. Uh, That just doesn't wash. The number of tort filings is down. Trials are way down. But the number of tort filings is down, and it's very dangerous, Victor, to generalize from your personal experience. Well, I've never found it dangerous. say one word about class actions. Victor was very unhappy with, with class actions, but the only pharmaceutical cases that are class actions are pharmaceutical cases that settle. And let's not forget that it's often the defendant who wants a class action case because what they want to do, there's nothing wrong with this, but they want to buy res judicata as broadly as they can, as inexpensively as they can. And, and Merck, obviously, they're very well represented, very able lawyers. They obviously made, made a judgment, an economic judgment, that it was going to cost them less over time than to settle, I forget how many cases it was, but were wrapped into this class action rather than, uh, than go in the other direction. But, but notice that Pfizer, that's, that's, that's facing the same kind of litigation, with its uh, COX-2 inhibitors, is taking a very different approach. Just for the, I want to hear the questions, but the Merck settlement was not a class action settlement, just so everybody here knows. It's a settlement of individual cases one by one, just for well, so no one is confused Well, about but there was the Vioxx class action that included thousands of claims, which was settled along with everything else. Mm-hmm. There's no class action settlements. I have a question for Theodore Eisenberg. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I have a question for Theodore Eisenberg. Uh, As I understand it, you studied uh, bilateral contracts by large, sophisticated commercial entities uh, and determined that only a low percentage of those included either jury waiver clauses or arbitration clauses. You concluded, therefore, that the, uh, the legal system can't be too dysfunctional, at least not with respect to this kind of claim. Uh, I'm wondering, though, uh, since you mentioned that arbitration clauses are almost ubiquitous in various types of consumer contracts, like, for instance, cell phone contracts, uh, whether that very high instance of arbitration clauses in those kinds of contracts suggests that, in fact, the legal system is in crisis with respect to consumer contracts. Uh, So it's hard to generalize from what we did to the consumer contract because we didn't study them. I'm actually doing a study now. Uh, I think you could interpret it as crisis in terms of millions and millions of consumers suing their phone companies for the $1 overbilling they get each month. Uh, but I think what's, what's pretty clear going on with the arbitration clauses and consumer contracts is it's simply an anti-class action device or more generally an anti-aggregate litigation device because no one's going to actually sue their phone company over the little ripoff they get each month uh, if the phone company miscalculates the bill or systematically cheats everyone a little bit. 
so what the phone companies fear and the credit card companies fear are aggregate litigation, and the way to avoid that is through arbitration clauses that ban class action activity. Uh, so I don't think there was a whole swarm of suits against phone companies uh, you know, by individuals. It's only class actions that they're fearful of, and that's why they uh, put it in. I think just to... Uh, Merck is a really good illustration of, I think, the big question that should trouble whether you're conservative or liberal or whatever. Um, if, if the bottom line is plaintiffs' attorneys are doing too much and we should leave this to the government, you really have to ask, where's the government with respect to Merck and Vioxx? Right? This is a company that published articles in the New England Journal of Medicine that left out three heart attacks. So they could say that there was no statistically significant increased risk of heart attack on Vioxx. Uh, well, the science has subsequently proved that completely wrong. Someone lied, cheated, or stole their way uh, into misrepresenting that data. The New England Journal of Medicine published in the polite phrasing of science an expression of concern about the omitted heart attacks. Uh, and where's the government? I mean, it's true, it's not so great that the plaintiff's lawyers may be the ones doing this, but where are the Merck executives in jail? Where are the indictments for the people murdered? Um, these drugs were known killers, and they were put on the market. Hey, Ted, um, you like I, the jury system. Twelve juries who heard all that stuff in full context yeah. found to Merck, and I don't want to debate the Merck cases, but I think it is uh, to this audience, I wouldn't uh, look at it that way, when 12 jurors who heard all the evidence found for Merck. And I think I, getting into a one-sided uh, defamation of a company in this audience is just not a good idea. Let, let, let me throw in, tying in with one of Professor Vladek's themes, that the British legal aid uh, system examined uh, Vioxx claims and decided that uh, they were not viable and it would not go forward on behalf of uh, British patients. On, uh, and it turned out to be a very accurate assessment of the weakness of the litigation, as we now know, seeing that Merck is buying its way out so cheaply. From, uh, from the cases. I'd like to throw in a remark or two also about commercial litigation because I detect may maybe it's not a tension between um, uh, Professor Vladek's comments about how the real litigation is business versus business and Professor Eisenberg's findings that business isn't all that worried these days about business versus business litigation. One way to square the circle might be that the most intense and expensive areas of business to business litigation may be the non-contractual cases. It might be the intellectual property. It might be uh, certain antitrust uh, or uh, unfair competition claims. Um, so maybe that's why commercial litigation is perceived as intense and yet cannot be contracted uh, out from. But I would say, just from having watched things since at least as far back as the Texaco Pennzoil case, that for quite a while people were worried. You had all of these Texas plaintiffs' lawyers uh, running around saying uh, Texaco Pennzoil and the three or four similar things that John O'Quinn did in Texas are just the start. And before long, we're going to do to commercial litigation exactly what we've done to product liability. And that produced a panic for a few years. And then uh, they realized that, uh, in fact, the lawyers weren't very good at replicating that, and the state courts were not very interested in providing them with more of that. And uh, what I take from Professor Eisenberg's uh, very interesting study is that uh, I, as a patriotic New Yorker, I'm glad that the New York courts are considered good for commercial contract litigation. I think that's been true uh, for a century or so. And, uh, you know, the, the, the more New York... Uh, uh, praise the, the, the better. I, I would not, however, rush to take comfort if I were, let's say, a doctor in New York. 
Uh, this is a question for Professor Eisenberg. I wonder if he could comment on uh, what may be a trend, and depending on how the, the U.S. Supreme Court rules in the Hall Street case that was argued a few weeks ago about the uh, provisions of, for enhanced judicial review uh, that have been uh, occurring in arbitration contracts that uh, provide for arbitration but then allow for judicial review for legal error, uh, and whether that, uh, whether that was studied uh, in, in your study and, and what effect that might have if uh, the Supreme Court says that that's uh, okay under the Federal Arbitration Act? Uh, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the details of the arbitration issue in the case. I'd say this. I think arbitration gets, I think, too much credit and too much blame for a lot. Uh, arbitration, at least in the employment context, may, I mean, if you accept uh, what Mr. Vladek said, that the average person can't get a lawyer for an average claim, um, it may be that arbitration is a way in which you can get it at reasonable expense. And it may actually have a role to play. I wouldn't. Studies I've done suggest that plaintiffs don't always lose an arbitration, <laughs> that there are some fair arbitrators out there and that plaintiffs can win an arbitration perhaps as much as litigation. The problem is cost, and I'm not sure uh, the word is in yet on whether arbitration is actually uh, less expensive or more expensive. I think arbitration at its best is very good, but at its worst, um, you know, is just a way of cutting off access to court because people know you'll never arbitrate. Professor Vladek, I had a, a proposal. I, I was kind of interested about what you think about this. So this would be a return to the free market where if we rewind 100 years where we didn't have uh, virtually every state requiring a three-year law degree for entry to the bar, um, we had more the model of the patent bar where you could take this exacting exam. And then you've also got the option, if you'd like higher rates, of going and pursuing legal education. And you could do a one, two, or three-year degree. Uh, as someone who just spent $100,000 in three years of time I could have been working on a, on a law degree, you know, the idea that I, I, I can't even afford to give someone an, a rate that would be considered accessible. And at the same time, the idea that if I go do some pro bono work in criminal defense for, you know, a week, a year, that that's going to be doing any kind of service to the public versus what they could get if, they could hire someone who only had to spend one year in law school. Uh, that, that that's that's a better arrangement seems seems kind of ludicrous. And I, I'm curious as to how you would respond to that type of a system. I have to be very careful. My dean is sitting just down the. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I can't come out against legal ed, formal legal education. I have you know it, when I went to law school, which is back at the end of the Pleistocene era, uh, there were many uh, states in which you could read for the bar and take the bar. And I know lawyers who are practicing in Washington D.C. today who did that, who are quite able lawyers. Um, uh, so I, I don't. I, the law school as a barrier to entry is not necessarily something that I, I think is necessarily a good idea. Um, so I'm, it's fine with me as long as you can pass the bar exam. I'm not sure it would be fine with, with the dean here. <laughs> I enjoyed the uh, discussion of the relative merits of the American and the uh, European legal systems. One subject that none of you touched on, which I, in over 30 years of practicing law, and having had the opportunity to take some wonderful trips to other countries, uh, observe that we are the only country in the Western industrial world that does not require mandatory apprenticeships as a condition of practicing law. Now, we have, you know, law school is a wonderful thing, but I can tell you that most of the bad lawyering and the frivolous lawsuits and the problems that uh, create the public perception of uh, problems with our profession come from young lawyers who are you know, heavy with student loans, they hang out a shingle, they advertise 
you know, the first thing about how to evaluate a case, and I'd like your comments on this because in California we're trying to start a movement to emulate the British Inns of Court and to bring about a mandatory requirement that to emulate the medical profession to require that uh, more than just graduating from law school should be a, prere a prerequisite to represent clients in litigation. The Carnegie Commission has just issued a report that I think is sending shockwaves through uh, law schools, which takes pretty much the same view that you do, that when uh, students graduate from law schools, uh, they're not at all trained to actually be lawyers. And so one of the uh, one of the proposals that the Carnegie Commission has made is that law schools try to reorient their curriculum to make sure that students before they leave have something akin to what you're describing, some kind of structured, supervised opportunity to actually engage in the practice of law. Um, I think our, our school is taking a very hard look at trying to provide students with those opportunities, not just clinical opportunities, but externships and other forms of formal skills training. And so I, I think your, your views are very much in sync with those who have, have taken a look at legal education. I'd be very curious as to the dean's views on this. I think that legal education at its best is supposed to prepare people for the practice of law. Wow, a shocking assertion. Uh, and yet there is a growing divide between uh, legal academy and the practice, and it's something that we really all ought to care about, and I think it's something that we ought to address at, uh, at the nation's law schools. Uh, my own thought is that clinics are an important part of it, experiential learning is an important part of it, but it also gets to the way we, we teach people. Slight digression, but... Uh, this panel is about litigation. I'm more of a transactional lawyer myself. I remember my first experience as a practicing lawyer uh, at a law firm. I was asked to mark up a stock purchase agreement, and I said to the associate who'd asked me to do it, I'd, I'd be happy to do it, but I have two questions. Um, what's this stock purchase agreement? And when you say mark it up, what do you mean? <laughs> right. Aside from that, I was flawlessly prepared. Uh, and it, one of my own personal missions uh, as a member of our faculty at Columbia and as dean is to try to broaden the way we educate lawyers. I teach a class on deals where we actually do Socratic conversations about stock purchase agreements. I think the students really like it, and uh, I learn a lot from them. Um, I, I'm not as convinced that there is sort of a one-size-fits-all answer for every young lawyer uh, and that it would necessarily look exactly the way you're suggesting, but I think the spirit of what you're saying is, is a point well taken. I think there's also a tension between uh, law school's sort of internal reputation among other good schools and, and, what, uh, and sort of very specific hands-on training of individual lawyers. We tend to get our prestige from, well, in the exaggerated phrase, pointy-headed intellectualism that's of no relevance to anyone else, uh, but that's a slight exaggeration. But we, we don't tend to get law school, within law school world prestige, from training lawyers very well. We tend to get it from academic articles, some practical, some not, but tend, tend to get it from academic articles. The actual high-quality training of lawyers is something we are not review, competing on in some deep sense. That is, our reputations don't rise or fall nearly as much on that as they might, uh, but there's, there's a cost there. I think high-quality, individualized training of lawyers is expensive, right? and so you might have to double or triple high-quality faculties to produce uh, sort of 
no net change in the degree of good scholarship being produced and to add the fact of very good lawyering, which I'm sorry to say might drive up the cost of legal education because right now we're really cheap in some sense. We're cheap for the universities because I can stand there in front of 100 students and train them, uh, at least to the degree we train them. If I'm a doctor, I have to get individual with each of them <laughs> and actually teach them how to do something, and that's very expensive. Um, and I think this issue ties in with the greater inclination of other countries' legal systems to try to create peer pressure among lawyers as well as from the bench where lawyers feel that they're more under scrutiny by their peers. A residency system or apprenticeship or inns of quarter or call it what you will, uh, will probably uh, increase the degree to which uh, lawyers feel under scrutiny by their peers as well as, you know, if you, one good way to become an ethical lawyer is just to practice under an ethical lawyer and see how the decisions are resolved. One time when I was teaching at a law school, I was teaching kids how to settle cases. It was a small section. And another faculty, is true, went to the dean and told on me that I was hurting the reputation of the law school. So when the dean spoke to me, I said, you know, he should think more broadly. I was hurting the reputation of the law school because I was there, not just... Uh, <laughs> uh, On your last point, the Vanderbilt University Law School is developing a bridge between practice and, and uh, academic experience as well. Short comment and a question. Uh, Professor Vladek, if you believe that there is not a de facto solicitation practice in the plaintiff's personal injury bar in the United States, you just don't understand that industry. Uh, but my question, um, after 30 years in litigation and following these subjects, uh, I would conclude that the broad-based tort reform uh, initiative in this country has largely been a failure. Uh, George Bush uh, made that a plank in his uh, campaign platform in 2000. We've seen no major uh, legislation of tort reform. However, uh, over the last quarter century, I think you've seen some rather significant incremental reforms in litigation that mirror some of the planks of the tort reform movement. One is the increase and in move towards mediation and arbitration, and in many jurisdictions it becomes mandatory, such as my own in Illinois. Another is uh, developments uh, reflected in the Daubert decision, uh, in which uh, there's a real concern about junk science, which was uh, in proliferation probably a quarter century ago, but now the federal courts uh, uh, provide a process for limiting what expert opinion comes in. Uh, and a third is in uh, looking at the length of litigation. The Eastern District of Virginia here, just across the river, has what's called the rocket docket. Uh, uh, I think I'm going to be a victim of that this year. Uh, cases go to trial within nine months after filing. So uh, would you share the opinion that there have been you know, many significant incremental changes uh, in the litigation system in this country that has had an impact on this litigation explosion? Thank you. Well, I, I comment. I agree with some that some of those changes are important. But I don't think that uh, TARP reform has failed. This Congress, uh, the Congress of the United States passed the General Aviation Recovery Act when the private industry of planes was in the tank. Cessna had closed its doors. Piper closed its doors. It's 10 years later. There were 23,000 new jobs. It was a statute of repose of 18 years. Uh, these are high-paying jobs. The planes are safer than ever. Uh, in the past four years, the Congress passed the Class Action Fairness Act. Now, federal courts have interstate cases, state courts have state cases, and it's worked. So that's just two instances. I don't want to monopolize time where civil justice reform worked. I, I, would, I think I agree that 
um, I'm not sure the legislative program has been quite as successful as tort reform would hope, but I think overwhelmingly, it's hard to measure, but I think tort reform has been a huge success for the defense over the last 20 or 25 years, not so much because of individual reforms, but because of sort of the, depending on your point of view, education or brainwashing of America. Uh, that is, we have been told over and over again, why is this panel called over-lawyering in the face of a decline in lawsuits? Um, we've told over and over again that we're in crisis, and I think people have internalized it. We have judicial hell holes by our data virgin, uh, Victor Schwartz. We have these labels thrown around. Uh, and so people have really internalized it. It's really tough to win a case. Uh, and I think tort reform has been an enormous success. Yeah, let me just quickly add, I, I agree with that, um, that tort reform has had a huge bite. And if you just look at the flat line of aggregate damage awards, um, if, you, if you measure the success or failure of tort reform by payouts, uh, I think you'd have to say tort reform has been quite successful. And, and please be assured, I have no illusions about solicitation in personal injury cases or in any other form. My only point was, in, in the United States, it's still, at least if you read the code, it's not appropriate. In England, it's, it's no hold bars. Uh, <clears throat> I wish we could measure the success or failure of these things better. Uh, my own uh, inclination is to um, look for data streams where you're capturing actual payouts that include settlements rather than uh, just uh, things that, that reach verdict, which are a tiny percentage of that. And we don't have very good data streams on uh, most of the areas like product liability, liability, um, uh, the numbers are about as good as anywhere on an area like medical malpractice, and there uh, it doesn't quite bear out either side's case. Uh, uh, payouts seem to have been fairly level uh, in recent <coughs> years after having increased enormously uh, uh, 20 years ago or so uh, in product liability. Yes, we can get at some things like asbestos, which continues, so far as I can see, to go up and up and up and up and up. But, but that doesn't mean that pharmaceutical cases are not also producing lots of money. We just don't have... Uh, as good numbers on it. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, Mr. Eisenberg, you spoke about rent-seeking behavior among corporations uh, in kind of... What kind of behavior? Uh, uh, rent-seeking, trying to, trying to reduce their costs yes, okay. by, um, by pushing tort reform. And Mr. Uh, Schwartz, you spoke about the plaintiff's bar and opposing this in seeking to increase their revenue, but what about the defense bar? It seems like they're some of the most powerful um, organizations in the legal community, and it seems like their incentives match up largely with the plaintiff's bar in terms of the more work that exists, the more work they do as well. Uh, what's their role been, you know, and um, what should their role be in this debate? Uh, well, first, I think you're right, and I'll uh, use the currency of anecdote. One of my plaintiff lawyer acquaintances was given some trouble in a s southern state by some defense lawyers. They were hassling him, uh, and the way they punished that defense lawyer was to drop their client from the lawsuit. Uh, <laughs> and and that, that type of troublesome litigation behavior ceased uh, in, in, in the next case. But I think the defense side, it, it, well... You know, uh, if you're told, you know, by the rules of the game, vigorously defend your clients, and uh, in some cases they use no hold, no holds barred litigation. Uh, I think, yes, their their interests join the plaintiffs in the sense of they get paid more in litigation. But I think 
some of the excess costs of litigation are, in fact, because of agency problems with uh, defense firms. There are lots of agency problems addressed on the plaintiff's side, but they're huge on the defense side when you bill by the hour and, uh, you know, you're not overseen closely and their insurance companies paying the cost rather than the client itself. Um, there are huge overcosts, I think, overruns in what defense firms pay, although it's very hard to get inside that data. Uh, you've touched on one of my pet topics. I have a discussion in my last book, The Rule of Lawyers of the Defense Research Institute, which um, quietly but regularly sends witnesses to testify against measures that would uh, scale back to the liability of their own clients uh, in, in the, on the defense side. And uh, some very fun memos came to light uh, during a couple of California initiative campaigns, California, as you know, has had several rounds of things trying to limit auto crash cases and, and others. And the Association of Southern California Defense Council sent out an ur urgent emergency memo saying we have to stop this. There's not going to be any auto defense business for us if this sort of thing passes. Uh, please join with our plaintiff's brethren uh, to make sure this fails. And, uh, <coughs> you know, it was all pretty shameless. After the memos appeared in the newspaper, no one apologized. No one changed what they were doing. One summer at Kansas City, our firm, Shikari and Bacon, headquarters is there, and the firm is litigators. We have this little public policy group that deals with tort reform, but we're five lawyers in a 600-person firm. And the summer associate said, uh, Victor, isn't what you do putting the rest of the firm out of business? And I thought that was a good little question, where the chairman <laughs> of the firm was there. But uh, to some extent, the answer is it does reduce uh, the cost of litigation. It does uh, mean fewer billable hours. And I agree with Walter. In general, the defense bar per se has not been active in civil justice reform. The spearhead has been more the companies themselves and organizations that um, support and work with those companies. There have been exceptions and there are defense lawyers that have worked very hard for civil justice reform, regardless of whatever Ever individual consequence that might be on their rates. Attorney General Thornburg would be an example of that. Thank you. I had a question for Professor Eisenberg. Um, before I asked it, I noticed that uh, you said median awards were flat, and you also said that tort reform had been massively successful. So I take it that you believe that justice requires that median awards be spiraling upwards. Um, spiraling seems like a loaded term to me. Um, <laughs> no, it was. Um, my question is um, the, the median award can hide a lot. Um, as a former plaintiff's lawyer, I, I was very surprised by what you said. I was wondering whether you accounted for um, differences in practices like med mal or particularly mm -hmm. obstetrics and gynecology. Um, employment discrimination. I was wondering whether you accounted for differences in regions. I had always heard it was good to practice in the Bronx, in North Carolina, in certain parts of the South. I was wondering whether you uh, had any information about, let's say, the top 5% of awards, whether that has increased over time. Um, the, la the last I looked, I, I'm trying to remember, uh, these data, there was no increase I believe in the mean or median punitive damages award from the Bureau of Justice data on 45 large counties from 92 to 96 or from 96 to 2001. There was just no increase. Now, I think but you're completely correct to try county. Pardon? In a particular location there. I wonder if some well, places are well, better the, the data, because there are so few trials and punitive awards are so rare, 
the data gets so thin that you really have trouble making any sort of reasonable statistical statements. But I think you're, you're right. I mean, this, uh, if you look at it at the individual sort of case category level, such as MedMal and then even within MedMal, the story can be quite different. Um, I think MedMal has increased relative to inflation uh, over time, but medical costs <laughs> have increased relative to inflation over time. And so it's, you know, you'd want an inflation index for each little industry as well as uh, society as a whole. So and, you know, MedMal is a complicated thing. It's, um, we know uh, that most people who suffer negligent harm by physicians never bring a claim. Right? We know that most claims that are brought that are um, meritless, in fact, do not prevail, not just most, the overwhelming majority. And we know that the size of awards correlates with the size of the harm. Um, so we have the medical mal is in some ways the most studied system because unlike products liability, you can get an ex post assessment of the quality of care from the records in the case. And so there are several medical studies where you actually look at it. It turns out most of those studies show the system works reasonably well. You can't stop people from filing lawsuits and some of them will be weak. Uh, but as as the cases progress, the overwhelming evidence is the system sort of works. Um, the weak cases get filtered out. The strong cases uh, get paid off, uh, often not a trial. And you have to look at the settlements. Uh, yeah, let, let me take issue with that. We don't want to get sidetracked into it, but the uh, still the best known of the medical malpractice empirical studies, the Harvard one found that a significant number of the cases considered meritless were in fact getting uh, payments to conclude that the, uh, there was a poor um, uh, poor association between the merits of the case and the um, uh, likelihood that it would result in litigation and uh, incorrect. That, well, the uh, and the um, uh, that the um, uh, and and nearly everyone finds that the, uh, the cost of payouts is heavily concentrated on a very few specialties, and that within those specialties, uh, it is not just. Uh, some small percentage of incompetent lawyers uh, who are being hit, but that in OBGYN, uh, uh, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, uh, you know, if you practice in a litigious area, uh, uh, you are going to get sued and probably have payouts. I think you're right. Means tell us, these average means tell us absolutely nothing. There are outliner verdicts. There are jurisdictions in the United States where forum shopping is rampant. Uh, we do call them judicial hellholes. Nobody's ever disputed uh, those in any particular way. So the outliner verdict is a threat. And if you know that in a jurisdiction, I think of a place in Mississippi, which is now much, much better, but a few years ago, 10 people got 100, what was it, $10 million each, and their average economic loss was $7,500. And the judge just let the plaintiff's lawyer do whatever he wants. And that causes fear. And that is not shown in the median uh, statistics. Uh, hi, my question is for Mr. Olson. Uh, when uh, Professor Eisenberg put his chart of the uh, different jury systems and the perceived fairness up, I noticed the state of Louisiana was uh, very highly rated, and I was wondering if you thought... Well, that's that a bad that rating, not a good it's, rating. Uh, yeah, invert the, the scale. Is well, well, right, right, but you, you had been talking about how the, the systems in, in Europe uh, tended to be better. Well, Louisiana is, of course, influenced by uh, European systems and is a civil law system. And I was wondering if you could talk about why Louisiana might be different. Well, Louisiana, as I think people from Louisiana will be the first to tell you, is, is sui generis in any number of ways. And the fact that they inherit their uh, procedure 
from uh, the Napoleonic Code has not kept them from being a um, uh, rather typical American jurisdiction on many, uh, or t typically liberal on uh, many issues of damages uh, there. Um, uh, I, I, can't, I don't know enough to get into the details about uh, how it would differ from the Alabamas, Mississippis, Arkansas, with which it might be compared as a, a cultural belt, the, uh, the jackpot belt, I once referred to it, uh, along, along with the coastal areas of Texas, where, you know, which <clears throat> between them have produced a uh, vastly outsized share of uh, uh, controversial verdicts and forum shopping issues and, and things like that. And uh, Louisiana is by no means the uh, most intense zone in that Gulf Coast belt, uh, but it's uh, more like it than it is like Nebraska. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, why not, not being from there, I, I hesitate to say. Thank you. I would like to put this to the whole panel. In, in my town, the most active PI law firms, the back of the phone book type ones, you know, huge billboards everywhere, they never go to trial, and very rarely, I think, even file suit. They, uh, you know, write demand letters, and there's provisions in, in uh, state law for instant $10,000 payments for insurance companies. How does that get captured in your data, and isn't that the vast majority of the transfer from the uh, companies and insurance companies to the plaintiffs and their lawyers? I'm sorry, is this automobile or other? I think it especially applies especially the $10,000 PIP stuff is, is all automobile, but I think just in PI work in general, at least in my town, I know that the big firms very, very rarely go to trial or even file suit. It's all, it's all done with the well, I, I, I'm Just in the study, I, I did this a long time ago, but the, there's a big difference between the statement that they rarely go to trial and they rarely file suit. Okay. At least what I looked at in products liability was you rarely got any money any substantial money unless you filed suit, perhaps outside of auto. Uh, I agree they rarely go to trial, but I think to get serious money, you need to file suits usually. Uh, not you, always. You usually. have hit the heartland of America. The demand letter with no lawsuit, a baseless claim, and the PI lawyer, not the top ones, not the, the ones that are on TV and who are always, I'm always debating. They never file a frivolous lawsuit. But this uh, part of the bar that files a case for $10,000, $7,500, and then makes an offer to settle for what the legal cost would be for the defense. The insurers get their checks out. Uh, they pay them. The sanctions against frivolous claims don't work because they're rarely put in. And if this audience was the National Federation of Independent Businesses and the 800,000 businesses that they represent, they would have applauded you when you finished your statement because that's what the small businesses in America face. They are not captured by data. They are small claims. They're settled for just a little under the defense costs, and then their insurance goes up. That's a home run, what you talked about. That's real America. Yeah, let, let me... Um, <laughs> In, in, employment is another area where it's very hard to look at filings and be confident that you're capturing most of the uh, settlements because in the employment area, uh, typical of a number of other ones, uh, the plaintiffs don't want that to be on the record uh, or to go through the, the trouble. They want the settlement. Uh, both sides have an interest in keeping the filing from taking place, which does not mean there's not going to be a settlement. 
Well, with, with employment law, you have the other problem of arbitration. I mean, if you, if you just sort of look at the, at the tableau of employment cases, uh, you know, a huge percentage of them never, never go to court because there's an arbitration agreement that would be enforced. And so... Um, Are you thinking of securities or, or where, where is there arbitration of employment discrimination employment. claims? Many, many, many employers and large employers now require employees to sign arbitration agreements. The Supreme Court in a case just a few years ago involving, and I forget what it was, Walmart or one of the big companies uh, upheld the use of arbitration employment agreements. And so uh, you have uh, very you know, big companies requiring arbitration agreements. That, 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 that's confirmed. I mean, I, the study I put up was about waiver of jury trials, but our, the requirement of mandatory arbitration is much more common in the employment contracts in the SEC database than in any other contract. And though, but those are not representative. Those are to be in the database. You have to be a material contract in an accounting sense. So the contracts you're seeing in the Edgar database are, you know, the CEOs or people whose contracts are in some sense material to the company. Uh, but oh, those far more than the other classes of contracts had had arbitration requirements. And I think that's Many employees see that, and it, employment really is different in terms of right. underlying, perhaps wrongful activity, a number of lawsuits. It was, it was Circuit City versus Adams is the case. So, with apologies to the rest of you, we have time for only one more question and, and a very quick answer. This question is directed mainly to Professor Vladek. Um, we talk about uh, the erosion of legal services in areas outside the corporate world. One of the potential problems that I perceive is the possible threat of non-lawyers offering legal services um, in a number of very low areas. Uh, one example might be estate planners, the other might be accountants. Um, some of this encroachment is casual. Some of it is actually very proactive, encouraged by anti-lawyer activists. Do you see this as a credible threat to the legal profession in the long haul? And if it is, what would be some of the solutions? Well, I always have had concerns about a, a, a profession that aggressively engages its own self-regulation. And you'll see UPL charges filed against people who are charlatans, who are masquerading as lawyers. Those people are criminals and they ought to go to jail. But there are people who provide legal services in areas in which lawyers will just not uh, offer services. Uh, and I'm all in favor of finding some way to certify those people to provide very limited, very targeted legal services to those who would otherwise not get it, but subject to some regular, regulatory overlay. Uh, I do think that the, the, the boundaries of what constitutes the practice of law need to be rethought. Uh, in Arizona, there was a famous dispute between uh, the title search people in the bar that went be back and forth between the state Supreme Court and the state legislature over the ultimate question of whether the legislature or the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, could set that boundary. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are restrictions on non-lawyers engaging in activity that one could call legal services. Uh, that I think uh, we, we as a society need to grapple with and state legislatures need to get involved. Uh, but I am very worried about a, a system like the legal system that claims an absolute and unconditional right to regulate itself and, uh, and, and at times aggressively 
patrols the boundaries of what constitutes the practice of law. In most states, there is no statute that defines what constitutes the unauthorized practice of law. It's a common law rule that's evolved over years, inaccessible to anybody without a law degree. We need to leave it there because thank you. and you should thank you and you should stay where you are, because in a moment, uh, as soon as our panel leaves, Senator Mitch McConnell will be coming in to speak in this room. So we're actually not taking a break, um, but we've gotten wonderful questions. The panel's terrific. Thank you all.